Please be seated. Good evening and welcome to church. Uh, as we, be, <clears throat> as we uh, come to our Evensong on this second Sunday in Easter. And our uh, discussion this evening will be on Matthew 28, uh, from verses 16 to 20, that Reverend uh, Kubuwa just read. Uh, as we begin, let me lead us in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, who died and was raised again for our salvation. And Father, we pray that as I speak now, you will guide me with your Holy Spirit to speak truly and faithfully and clearly to your praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, last Sunday, we celebrated the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. Attested to by angels and men, the historic resurrection proved that what Jesus had taught was the truth. Now, if Jesus had remained dead, that would just mean that Jesus was a great teacher who was unjustly put to death. Unjustly put to death by the Roman authorities that were instigated by the leaders of the Jews because of their jealousy and fear of Jesus. But Jesus rose on the third day of his death. What he had said would happen had happened. And with that empty tomb, God had confirmed that Jesus was truly his son, whom he sent to die for the sin of the world, and who rose so that those who believe in him would follow him to eternal life. So friends, on that first Good Friday, 2,000 years ago, Jesus conquered sin. And on that first Easter, Jesus conquered death. You know, as we were uh, going through the period of Lent and Passion Week and Good Friday, we were feeling sometimes sorry and sad for Jesus and for ourselves as well. But we need to be because Jesus has shown that in all this time, throughout the Passion and his suffering, he was totally in control of the situation. As he had taught, he came as man to suffer and to die for the sins of the world. And he has risen. Hallelujah. Now, Matthew, unlike the other Gospels and the Acts, Matthew moves very quickly from the resurrection event to what we call the Great Commission. That event when Jesus, the commander-in-chief, gave the disciples their marching orders the disciples obeyed, and the whole world was changed. Now, please turn with me to page 995, uh, to Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. And you will also find a sermon guide at the center of your bulletin, which might be helpful uh, if you glance at it uh, now and again. Now, we will be discussing this passage in three parts. Firstly, verses 16 to 17, on the gathering or the meeting. And secondly, from 19, verses 9, verse 19 to the first part of verse 20, the Great Commission. And then uh, from verse 18 and the last bit of our passage, uh, verse 20b, the assurance of Jesus. 
So the gathering, and we will discuss this in three points. Firstly, the mountain. Let me read verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. As we mentioned before, Matthew does not write about the post-resurrection period during which Jesus appeared to his, to his disciples. But we know from other parts of the Bible that Jesus did appear to them. We find this in Luke chapter 24, in John chapters 20 and 21, and also in the Acts of the Apostle uh, chapter 1. But as you read verse 16, you find two very interesting things about this verse. Firstly, the disciples obeyed the instructions from the two Marys without any query. This would have been quite unusual in first century Palestine, especially among the Jewish uh, people, where the word of women folk did not carry much weight. This points to the possibility that Jesus had also given them instructions himself. Secondly, you, I want you to contrast verse 10 and verse 16. Now, verse 10, Jesus tells the women, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and then and there they will see me. And in verse 16, Matthew recorded that the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. It is thus quite likely that the additional detail of a specific mountain in Galilee that the disciples were familiar with had been given by Jesus himself to them. Now, if you accept these two points, this event can then be placed towards the end of the post-resurrection period of 40 days before Jesus was ascended, uh, had ascended to heaven, as mentioned in Acts chapter 1. But friends, however you take it, the main point is that Jesus met with the disciples and sent them marching at this mountain. Now, the second point uh, in our first two verses is uh, worship. And you can find this in the first part of verse 17. Let me read. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. Was this an indication, friends, that somehow the Lord's appearance before them at that occasion was somehow extraordinary, beyond what they had been used to? Or was this the same mountain where the transfiguration took place, which would have a very special significance for Peter, James, and John? and who had passed it on to the other disciples so that they would have associated this mountain with the grandeur of Jesus during the transfiguration? Or was it just the scene of the mountain, the presence of the Lord among the remaining disciples that was so powerfully moving that they all fell at his feet and worshipped him? Well, again, whatever position you take on this, the disciples fell down and worshipped Jesus just as the women did on Resurrection Day that you can find at the end of verse 9. The third point, doubt. And this you can find at the end of verse 17. But some doubted. The word that is translated here as doubt can be translated as hesitant or wavering and not in the sense of unbelief or disbelief. So, does it mean that this group of disciples actually include many more others than just the remaining 11 disciples as described here in Matthew? For one thing, the women would be, like, would be there. They were the ones who carried Jesus' first instruction to them. 
And even if Jesus had met with them later and given them additional instructions, the women wouldn't have wanted to miss this occasion. Oh, maybe perhaps this is the event mentioned by Paul in his first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15, verse 16, where he mentioned that over 500 brothers saw the risen Lord with their own eyes at the same time. If that is so, this could explain how some disciples hesitated worshipping Jesus as they were Jews and had been taught that only God should be worshipped. Some would not have, at that time, totally accepted that Jesus should be worshipped. Or was it just Matthew, along with some others, afraid and doubtful and hesitant about the future without Jesus by their side? Again, friends, however you understand it, the key point seems to be that even in the midst of worship, among the strongest of believers, there were normal human weaknesses, normal human uncertainties, and normal human fears. So, we come to the Great Commission uh, in verses 19 to the first part of verse 20a. And again, we are going to discuss this in three points. Firstly, go and make disciples. And this begins um, in verse 19, the first part of 19. Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Now, in the Old Testament, when God gave an instruction to the prophets or his judges to do something, God used the word go. Just to give you three examples. In the passage that we read just now, uh, Exodus 3, uh, just a little bit further down to verse 16, God told Moses, Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me. In Judges 6.14, the Lord turned to Gideon and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Did, do I not send you? And in Jeremiah 1 verse 7, the Lord said to Jeremiah, Do not say I am just or do not say, I am only a youth. For to all whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. And for Jesus' audience, made up of those who grew up with the scriptures, the command of Jesus was unmistakable. It was a supreme command as if from God himself. The disciples were to go and make disciples, not only among the Jews, but now it includes all the nations. There was a great deal of work to be done. The whole world has now been included in their mission. The word of God's grace must go forth so that men and women of all nations would come and know about Christ and then to follow Christ. Okay, then we come to the second part, baptizing them. This is in the second part of verse 19. Jesus said, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now we know from the Gospel of John chapter 4 verse 2 that Jesus himself does not baptize though he allowed his uh, disciples to do so. So why did he instruct them to disciple nations by baptizing them? Why did Jesus choose this important occasion to instruct the disciples to baptize as a mark of discipleship? Well, it was no longer the water baptism of repentance of John 
that was associated with John the Baptist. Rather, it was the offer of grace given in the name of the triune God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The grace that offered salvation by faith in Jesus Christ alone. That was not all. Now we come to the third part of the Great Commission, and that is found in the first part of uh, verse 20, teaching them. Jesus said, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Well, friends, I don't know about you, but when I graduated from university a long, long time ago, being young and brash and overconfident, maybe, I thought, that's it, you know, I've done it. Now the world owes me a living. Now all I have to do is uh, sit back and all my juniors will be running around serving me, trying to please me. Well, you know how wrong I was. The knowledge that was taught to me at university equipped me for work. It taught me how to apply this knowledge to serve my employer. But it certainly did not entitle me to a life of leisure to enjoy the service of others, as I found out, to my own expense. Graduation was just the beginning of a long and hard journey, a long and hard process to earn a living. And friends, in much the same way, baptism is not the final thing or the graduation of our Christian life. We did not graduate from our pre-baptism uh, uh, course, and uh, now, being baptized, we can now wave our baptism certificate and say, open the gates of heaven, you've got a place for me, and now I can live a life of leisure. Rather, it is just the beginning, the start of a life that will be lived for Jesus. Since now, we acknowledge him as our Lord and Savior. A life that begins with being taught what Jesus expects from a true follower of his, from a true Christian. Not only to learn, but also to obey all that he has commanded us to do. A new beginning that turns away from and rejects the lusts of this world. Its love for riches and the acclaim, the praise and the glory of men. Now, Jesus commanded his first disciples to teach new disciples this, new, uh, this approach to living for, God as, uh, for Jesus as Lord and Master over them, just as he, as he had taught them before. Now they were to teach, his, teach it to the next generation of disciples, and they, in their turn, will teach that to the next generation, and then so on and so forth, till Jesus returns and takes us home to be with him. So it is with us, friends. We are to teach it to the future generations after us. So, friends, we can see that the Great Commission commands disciples to make disciples, to baptize them in the name of the triune God, and to teach them what Jesus had taught. Now, if you turn over the, in the middle of your bulletin to the last point, uh, well, to point number four, the assurance of Jesus, um, you would really need to look at it. Uh, uh, it will really help if you can look at it. Um, verses 18 to 20 are arranged in what is called a chiasm. And at the bottom of the page, you can see a chiasm is a unique way of writing that uses a repetition to clarify or to emphasize or to stress a point. And this method, though widely used in the Bible, to make a theological point is not widely known. 
Uh, now, what I've done is I've tried to um, draw this uh, chiasm in a sort of like an arrowhead. Uh, does it look like an arrowhead? Well, <laughs> it was meant to look like an arrowhead. Now, uh, let, me, let us just look at the chiasm first and we will come back to discuss verse 18 and the last bit of verse 20 in detail. Now, first thing we notice is that the verses or parts of the verses are arranged in pairs. So if you look at the top uh, of the uh, chiasm, you will see under the heading A, Jesus assures the disciples of his total authority over heaven and earth in verse 18. If you drop your eyes to the bottom to look at A slash, you will see Jesus repeats this assurance to his disciples, this time of his presence with them always. You can find in verse 20b. In A, Jesus assures the disciples of his total authority over heaven and earth. And in A slash, Jesus repeats this assurance, this time of his presence with them uh, always till the end of the age. And now in B, if you look at B, Jesus commands them to go and make disciples of all nations in the first part of 19. And then if you drop your eye to B slash, Jesus clarifies that this disciplining uh, comes with teaching the nations all that he has taught. Let's go again. Jesus commands them in B to go and make disciples of all nations. And in B slash, Jesus clarifies that disciplining comes with teaching the nations all that he had taught. And in the center, at the tip of our arrow, our arrowhead, Jesus said this in C. Disciples are to be baptized. And in C slash, Jesus again, again clarifies, this is not the water baptism. This is baptism in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Let's go through that again. In, in C, disciples are to be baptized, Jesus commanded. And in C slash, Jesus again clarifies, this is not just the water baptism of John the Baptist, this is baptism in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Do you see the pattern? Uh, I have... I hope I've not made it more confusing for you. But if you are reading the Bible next time and you see the chiasm pattern uh, in the passages that you are reading, do come and, and tell me about them because it will be helpful for me uh, because the chiasm points to a point and it makes it easier for us to understand it. Now that we have already looked at uh, the chiasm and also that we have looked at the verses B through to B dash, uh, B slash on the Great Commission, let's look in detail at uh, A and A slash. Firstly, A, the assurance of Jesus' authority. And we can find this in verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, friends, this was no longer the uh, suffering servant, bound and tied, tortured and bleeding, dying on a cross like a criminal, like a common criminal. No, the disciples are reminded this is the reason Christ, the divine God, the Son, in whom all power, honor, glory and splendor dwell. His resurrection is a proof. This is he who even had authority over sin and death. Secondly, the repetition of air. 
in a slash at the end of our passage on the, uh, verse 20. And behold, Jesus said, I am with you always to the end of the age. Earlier, we were looking at three Old Testament passages when we discussed the word go associated with the royal command of God to his prophets and to his judges. Well, in the same three passages uh, on, on Moses, Gideon, and Jeremiah, we shall see that God, we, see that, we shall see that God was giving them the same assurance as Jesus is giving the disciples here. For example, in Exodus 3 verse 12, He, God said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. And in Judges 6, 16, And the Lord said to him, But I will be, or I am, with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And in Jeremiah 1, 19, They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you, declares the Lord, to deliver you. We mentioned before also that the disciples who have been brought up to know Scripture from young would have viewed the instruction from Jesus to go and make disciples as a divine command. Now, in the same way, the assurance from Jesus that he will be with them always till the end of the age would be viewed as a divine promise, an assurance from none other than God the Son himself. So we can see that the chiasm reemphasizes that the Great Commission is at Christ's command to make Christ known and in Christ's power and presence. Let me repeat that. So we can see that the chiasm reemphasizes that the Great Commission is at Christ's command to make Christ known and in Christ's power and presence. And the gospel of grace will go forth. Discipling, discipling and baptism will reach to all nations. Teaching and establishing will continue. There will be no ceasing until Jesus returns and takes us home to be with him. And no matter what situation or difficulty the disciples will face, they will not be afraid because Jesus will always be with them. So as we draw to a close, to a conclusion, uh, what can we bring home with us from the Great Commission? Well, I'd like to suggest three things. Firstly, disciples are not perfect. We just look around us. We see the imperfection of disciples so clearly in others, especially in our own church, how they complain and talk bad about others, how they complain about the way we, we waste the resources of the church, how we see them uh, continuing to sin and doubt even as they worship God. But you know what, friends? We cannot see the same thing in us. It's happening in us as well. We as disciples are imperfect. We reflect the same imperfection, the same doubt, the same hesitation that the others are uh, displaying before us. But you know what? We as disciples have been granted that greatest of gifts, the grace of God that gives us salvation through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. But we are by no means perfect or perfected uh, by our faith in Christ. So, firstly, what we have to do, we need to encourage each other, encourage each other rather than to pull each other down. We should, we should move towards building each other and uh, 
work together so that we are a good uh, combination. Remember, disciples are not perfect. Now, secondly, our commitment as disciples. Now, someone has discipled us before. Now it's our turn to disciple others. But first, we ourselves must be willing to be taught, to be equipped so that we can teach others. Our Samaritan tagline is making disciples for Jesus Christ. And the work of discipling does not start and end with just theological, theological uh, learning. Jesus has also taught us to love others by serving them. We offer to help in areas uh, where we can contribute, uh, be it in the music uh, ministry or in ushering or welcoming or in counting the money or in the pew ministry that we can sit together. We can speak to newcomers and help them to settle down. For those who have been coming here for a longer time, uh, we can get to know them better, to sit and get to know their families, to share their joys and their griefs. Or we can care for those who are less capable of caring for themselves. Uh, we can care for those who need it, and so on and so forth. The list of ministries are un is unending. We need to see where we can contribute the best. We need to be reminded of our commitment as disciples. And thirdly, our total dependency on Jesus. We can draw comfort from today's passage that in all we do, we do it in the power of Jesus. In all we do, we can be confident that Jesus himself has promised us that he will be with us. Therefore, there is no room for us to boast or to feel superior uh, over others. It is all in Jesus' power and we are to trust in him to do his will in us. Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for reminding us that it is all in the power of Jesus that we can go forth and make disciples. We want to thank you for the wisdom of your uh, spirit to keep on reminding us that we shouldn't be uh, boasting or feel superior as we seek to serve him, especially when we seek to disciple others. We thank you that uh, um, you have uh, taught us that there are, there are contributions that we must make as disciples so that we can give glory and praise to you. We pray, Lord, that you will continue to guide us to lead this life that will be pleasing to you as Jesus has commanded us to do. In Jesus' name we pray.